12 when we were uh, leaving to move to New Orleans. And so this is a really powerful moment to me to come back in this capacity. Um, so I, I just I want to say thank you for allowing me to, to, um, to preach God's word this morning. I want to lead us in prayer during this time. <clears throat> God, we thank you so much for your deep and affection, affectionate love towards us. God, I thank you for the ways that you have blessed this congregation, and I ask that you would continue to bless them. I thank you for the friendship that we share, and I thank you for the bonds that we have through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I ask that you would continue to strengthen those. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have blessed this church specifically with the anonymous gifts that they have received towards their building fund. Lord, would you provide for them? Would you continue to provide in the ways that you already have? We thank you for this, Lord, and we bless your name for it, for you are good and faithful. Lord, I also pray for the team that has gone off to Uganda, Pastor Nick and Pastor Byron and several others. We ask that you would bless them as they travel. We ask that you would use them to um, proclaim the good news of what Christ has done. Would you use them to build up the Christians in Uganda? Would you use the Christians in Uganda to build our pastors up, Lord? God, may, may, your, may your work be done. And would you bring them back safely to us so that we can rejoice in the work that you are doing throughout the world. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just an American message, Lord. It is a message for all peoples of all nations, of all ethnicities and social classes, God. Help us, Lord, to understand this and help us to bring this gospel to the ends of the earth for your glory. And we also pray during this time, I ask that you would use me, allow me to be your mouthpiece, God, for the good of your kingdom. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we may walk faithfully before you as you have called us to do. Would you help us through the life of David and through the life of Saul to understand what true repentance and loyalty looks like not so that we just can be filled with knowledge, Lord, so that we can apply this knowledge and actually walk a life of loyalty and repentance. Thank you for your love and fellowship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, <clears throat> I'd ask you to open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This morning... I'm going to be working through a, a good bit of the material through First and Second Samuel. I'm not going to be reading a lot. I'm just going to be referencing a lot. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of these passages. I don't want you to have to be, you know, turning pages the whole time. But I am going to be referencing a lot from these stories, the story of David and the story of Saul. These messages are so important for us today, and I hope that we can glean wisdom and learn how to be faithful. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, this passage starts out, says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to them, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself 
to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I have anointed you king over Israel, and I have delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. If any of you are familiar with the story of David, you know that throughout Scripture, he is constantly referenced as a man who loved the Lord. A man after God's own heart is specifically how he's referenced throughout the remainder of his life. And then anytime Scripture goes back to him, he's the king of Israel. He's the king that they always reference as the one who leads the people faithfully, who shows the people what faithfulness to God looks like and specifically what repentance looks like. He's the king, church. And yet we find him here in chapter 12 trying to cover up a deep, significant, and heinous sin that he has committed. If you're familiar with the story, you know that David was not out with his military in the previous chapter, chapter 11. He walks out onto the balcony. He sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftops. He has messengers sent to go get her. He brings her into him. Effectively rapes her. And then in order to cover it up, as this passage says with Nathan, orchestrates the assassination of her husband Uriah so he doesn't have to deal with it. So he doesn't have to deal with the fallout. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the man that Scripture always points to as one who shows Israel how to be faithful. And here... He has blood on his hands, not metaphorically, but physically. He has blood on his hands. And 
this is just a sampling of the reality that the people of Israel, not just David himself, but the people of Israel, church, were called by God, beginning back with Abraham, where he said, go to a land that I will show you. And they were supposed to display for all the world what faithfulness to God looks like. They were supposed to be the shining beacon for all creation of how to be loyal to God, how to repent, how to walk humbly and courageously with their God. And Israel, time and time again, fails in the calling that they have received from Yahweh. And David is the best example they have of how to be faithful. We look at David's life and we look at a man who is supposed to be faithful and we we find him wanting. But what David displays so well, and this is what I want us to focus on today, is that David repents. He says it right there. I have sinned against the Lord. And if you know the story, this this recognition of his sin in verse 13, it's not just him saying, yes, I've sinned. He's not just acknowledging it. But where the story continues to go is that David takes the steps necessary so that he no longer continues to walk in this sin. That is repentance. That is repentance. Us simply recognizing that we have sinned is not repentance. We can feel deeply sad and remorseful. We can grieve. We can find ourselves on our knees with tears beside ourselves with emotion, church. But that's not repentance. Repentance is not an emotion. Repentance is a decision. Now, it's usually accompanied by emotions. I admit that. But it is a decision. It is a verb. It is something that we do. It literally means to turn. We turn from our sin. We put, we, we put action into our emotions so that we no longer walk in the ways that we have been walking. We get fed up with the ways that we have been living our lives and we say, no more will I return to this sin. I choose the ways of Yahweh. I choose that path. And this, this and this alone is why David is consistently looked upon as a man after God's own heart. It's not because he's perfect. It's not because he's sinless. It's because when he recognizes that he is in sin, he owns it. You see this in this passage. When Nathan confronts him with his sin, David doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't blame someone else for the wrongs that he has committed. He says, yes, I, I have sinned. He owned it. This is repentance. And I don't know about you, but I find too often in my own life that when someone confronts me with sin or when I, I get upset about the way someone talks to me, I constantly try to look for fault in someone else. And I don't think I'm alone in that. 
I think too often what we go about doing is trying to blame other people for sin in our lives, sin around us, and we never actually look inward and say, what have I done wrong? What is my fault here? In 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 8, the people of Israel ask for a king. And this desire for a king on their behalf is deeply rooted in sinful intentions. They want a king who will lead them out in battle, who will fight their army, who will fight the battles for them. That's what they want. They explicitly say, we want to be like the other nations. Now, the reason this is so deeply sinful is because in the judges' material, which is right before 1 Samuel, it is God every single time who delivers the people when they are being oppressed by other nations. It is God who fights on their behalf. So them asking for a king to fight their battles for them is an explicit and deep rejection of God who fought for them. This is rejecting God as their king. That's what's going on here. And so God warns them through the prophet Samuel, if you get a king, there's going to be oppression. I encourage you to go back and read these chapters. But the people deeply want a king. In verse 19 of chapter 8, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. They want a king. So God gives them a king. In the very next chapter, we meet a, a man by the name of Saul. And if you know the story, you know it's a tragic story. The author of 1 Samuel, from the very beginning, as soon as Saul is introduced to this story, there is foreshadowing going on so that people can know this is where this story is headed. And in chapter 10 specifically, I want, us to, I want to draw out three moments where there is foreshadowing going on. In between the events of nine and the verses that I'm going to read, Samuel anoints Saul as king, even though Saul doesn't want to become king. He may be a man who is head and shoulders taller than everyone else, the biggest man of all of, in all of Israel, but he does not want the weight of kingship on his shoulders. And he comes back to his father's household after pursuing his father's donkeys who are missing. And he says in 10, chapter 16, Saul told him, he assured us the donkeys, speaking of Samuel, however, Saul did not tell, Sam, what, tell him anything that Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. Now, if this verse was on its own, we would just think, ah, that's odd that he doesn't talk about this to his uncle, but no big deal. We'll move on. But the problem is that right after this, Samuel gathers all of Israel together so that they can choose a king for themselves. And they cast lots for this king. The lot falls on Saul, and Saul is nowhere to be found. They don't see him anywhere. And so they ask, in verse 22 of chapter 10, they inquired again of the Lord, has the man come here yet? Is our king here? The Lord replied, there he is hidden among the supplies. So now twice in a row, 
Saul has responded passively. He's responded fearfully. And at the end of this passage, it said some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift, but Saul said nothing. These moments in the life of Saul are so significant because the author of 1 Samuel is trying to show us that as big as this guy is, as impressive as he looks, he is deeply fearful of people. Deeply fearful. Saul fears men. From the outset, Saul fears men, not God. And if we want more proof of this, when you look over in chapter 13, Saul is given the opportunity to go out and fight the Philistines. Samuel had told him, wait for me. I'm going to make a sacrifice before you go out in the battle. But Saul becomes fearful because the Philistines are coming upon him. His army begins to leave, and he thinks that Samuel is not coming after all. So he decides himself, I'm going to make this sacrifice so that maybe I can have the Lord's favor, treating God like a rabbit's foot, so that maybe my army will not leave from me. Samuel comes upon the scene and he says, what have you done? Verse 10, Saul answered him, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come in the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to the burnt offering. This is a very significant moment in Saul's life because when Samuel is trying to get him to understand that he does wrong, Saul blames literally everyone else involved except himself. He blames the Philistine army. He blames the Israelite army that was fleeing. And he blames Samuel for not coming in time. But the one person that he needed to blame was himself. He needed to accept that he had done wrong, and he didn't. He did not. Saul is punished in this way by having the kingship stripped from him. He says, Samuel says to him, you have been foolish, you have not kept the command which the Lord God gave you. The Lord has found a man loyal to him in your place. This passage continues. There's another passage almost identical to this in chapter 15 where Saul again has the opportunity to be faithful to the Lord and instead what he does is responds out of fear. He's told to go massacre the Amalekites, the king, and all the animals. He doesn't do it. He says in verse 24 of chapter 15, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's commands and your words because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. This is another moment in Saul's life where instead of desiring to obey the Lord, his fear of men, his passivity, prevents him from submitting himself fully to God. And in both situations, chapter 15 and chapter 13, when Samuel rebukes him, he is deeply grieved by his sin. Deeply grieved by it. He cries 
In this passage alone, as Samuel is walking away from him after he is troubled by this, he tears at Samuel's cloak on his knees in tears, church. He grieves deeply. But you know what he doesn't do? He never repents. Saul never repents of his sin. It is so important that we understand this concept that us being sad, being remorseful of our sin is not repentance. It isn't. And I think so often we think that we're being faithful because we're grieved by our sin, but the reality is is that as soon as life gets hard, we go back to that sin that we've been so sad about. As soon as we get upset with our spouse or with our children over something that we've done, we allowed our anger, our fear, our struggles to consume us, to take over us. That is what drives us. It is not repentance. It is fear. And because of this, Saul loses the kingship. He loses it. Not only that, but his, him living in his fear and passivity continues to drive him down a road further and further and further that he never meant to go. And he ends up getting to the point that not only is he trying to kill David, he even throws a spear at his own son because his inability to control life as he wants it is driving him insane. And this is so desperately that what we must understand is that we cannot control life. We cannot create our own fantasy. We cannot make things go exactly how we want them to go. We can't do it. We must learn from the, the example The poor example at that, but the example that Saul displays. And what we must do instead is learn from David. We must learn from David, church. And I say that in the midst of knowing exactly what we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I recognize the example that David has displayed for us. But the reason he is so powerful for us is because he repents. He does it. He does it in the midst of his sin. This is what Scripture calls us to. And this is what these stories call us to. It's to stop trying to force our way upon life. And when things don't go our way, us trying to control it even more. (laughs) We must follow the ways of repentance that God has given to us. And that looks like surrendering everything to God and trusting everything to Him. Having those burdens lifted off of our shoulders so that we can walk paths of peace. 
That is the only way forward in the ways of God's kingdom. There are no other ways. I know that we try to force our own ways, but there are no other ways. Now, I say all those things, and I don't, I don't want us to forget the fact that David just committed a heinous sin. We know that in today's culture, with the Me Too movement that is going on, that women are oppressed at every turn. Okay? And if, if those of you who think that this movement has gone too far, you don't even have to worry about this movement. Let's just look throughout history. Women have been oppressed throughout history. Women have been treated like objects throughout history. And so I don't, I do not for a second want us to think or take David's sin lightly because that's not what I'm saying at all. David's sin is heinous and it needs to be treated as such. But what I am trying to say is that in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his deep sin, in the midst of our sin, there is a way out of it. And it is by surrendering all of ourselves to our Creator, not on our terms, but on His terms. And as I said earlier, David sets an an incredible example for us. But I still find him wanting I still find him deeply wanting because he is supposed to be the king that leads in righteousness and justice. And he falls short of that. He falls short of that deeply. And so the beauty of this story is that it doesn't end here. David is not the king who is going to reign on the throne forever. The one who is going to reign on his throne eventually is Christ our king. Christ our King who truly leads in righteousness and justice. Who gives us the opportunity to do this thing that we have been talking about all morning, repentance. If it were not for His sacrifice, there would be no opportunity for us to repent. But He paves the way, church, so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. And I'm not just talking about forgiveness of our sins so that we can one day live with Him and perfect harmony and peace, He gives us the opportunity now, today, in this flesh and blood, before the resurrection takes place. He gives us now the opportunity to live in peace and freedom if we will receive the grace that He has given to us. Yes, this is about salvation. Absolutely, this is about salvation. But this is also about we as Christians being free from the addictions that we find ourselves in. This is about we as Christians living in peace and harmony with our spouses, with each other. Salvation is not just about our souls. It is about our existence right now. It is about the conversations that you have with friends and family, with spouses and children as you go from this place. It is about you not having the guilt, the shame that you walk around with all day long because you can't shake your secret sins. That is what salvation is about. 
It is about all of that. And Christ offers, us to, uh, offers this to us. And he models for us what this life looks like in the Gospels. Living at peace with each other. What is required of us then is that we receive the grace of God that is extended to us and we say no more to our foolish paths. We say no more to our attempts to make life into our own image. We accept the life that God has given to us and we surrender everything else to Him. I'm going to pray for us. And I hope that we can receive this. That we can receive a life of repentance that God has given us. Jesus, thank You for this day. Jesus, thank You for Your love towards us, O God, our Savior. Help us, Lord, to live the life that You desire for us. Help us. Our flesh is weak, but our spirit is willing. Help us, God. Help us to get to the end of our ropes so that we'll finally surrender everything to You. Help us, Lord Christ, to live faithfully, to walk humbly before You. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.